This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. That civilization may not sink, its great battle lost. Quiet the dog, tether the pony to a distant post. Our master Caesar is in the tent where the maps are spread, his eyes fixed upon nothing, a hand under his head, like a long-legged fly upon the stream, his mind moves upon silence. I love that poem by Yeats, the great opening that civilization may not cease really strikes a chill in my heart and it feels like that sort of moment now, doesn't it? As war breaks out and threatens to engulf whole regions and climate change breaks out on so many fronts that we can hardly keep track. And meanwhile, our government gives timid promises about the transition, as long as it won't cost too much, and permits to new coal and gas projects. And the next UN conference on climate change will take place in Dubai, the heartland of oil exports. So we need to quiet the dog and hover over these interconnected problems with wisdom and compassion. Our springboard today is a letter signed Francis. He's from Argentina. He now has the highest role in the Catholic Church and his letter is aimed at those taking climate action and those who are thinking they have godlike powers with techno fixes that will enable us to go on burning coal, oil and gas. That's what the president of the next COP28 thinks. He's in the United Arab Emirates, and he thinks carbon capture and storage, as we heard two weeks ago, is the answer. So I'm interested in the Pope's letter called Laudato Deum, and I've invited two climate activists and scholars, Theo Ormerod, head of the multi-religious group ARC, and Winton Higgins, who is a Holocaust scholar 
and writer on secular Buddhism. Thea Ormrod is here to talk about the Pope's new encyclical called Laudate Deum. Thea is the chair of a multi-religion group called the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. In the lead up to COP28, Pope speaks to Catholics, but I think his message contains an analysis which will help a lot of people, whether or not they believe in God. Welcome, Thea. Tell us, first of all, why Pope Francis launched this uh, letter on the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. Well, the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi has special significance in the Catholic tradition. He's the patron saint of ecology and uh the 4th of October, which is his feast day, marks the end of the season of creation. And it happens to be at a good few weeks before COP28 starts. I think Laudato Diem is, is very much oriented to COP28. He wanted to get this similar to Laudato Si, which he published just before uh, the Paris COP. This is, he, he actually wants to shape the way people are, or wants to influence COP28. Yes, especially leaders. Well, tell us what's in the uh, encyclical. It has various sections, but one of the most important elements in it is just driving home the urgency of the climate crisis. He does this repeatedly throughout this document, which, by the way, is much shorter than Laudato Si. It's meant to be a sort of follow-up from Laudato Si, an update of sorts. So he talks a lot about how urgent the issue is and he addresses people's doubts and makes it very clear that humans have caused, as in greenhouse gas emissions. He particularly is crit critical of what he calls the technocratic paradigm. What he means by that is that uh, human beings have used technology to multiply their impact on the environment and to create a sort of dominance that was just unthinkable 100 years ago. But this has not been accompanied by the development of wisdom or the love of truth or the, the sort of values that you would hope. And it's made it much more possible to be destructive in the environment. Can so you give us some examples? I mean, listeners might be thinking of the atomic bomb. and Well, even... it wouldn't be a bad example, actually. Mm. You know, that mm. technology in and of itself isn't a good. It's only what it, how it can serve the needs of human beings. And unfortunately, it's meant that power has been concentrated into the hands of those who can wield technology. Mm. And, and some, let's face it, some technology is good and he perhaps doesn't acknowledge that as much as it should be acknowledged mm. because technological advances have also been important for us to, to sort of make advances in medicine and, you know, electric vehicles and yeah. Uh, renewable energy, but what he what he's having a go at is that when technology is used just to turbocharge capitalism and put economic gain well ahead of long term the long term common good and mm -hmm. justice and questions like that. Uh, so yeah, um, social media has had a way of polarizing to an even greater degree debates that were previously polarised, but they've really turbocharged that mm. black and white, you know, you belong to this group mm. or that group, that tribe or that tribe. Yeah, it's not, we haven't accompanied that technological development with 
wisdom and uh, regulation and channeling it for the service of humanity. He also praises civil society and he's critical of people who just characterise activists as greenies or radicalised. He sees civil society as filling a gap that politicians have been woefully leaving for people like activists to fill. In the end, he he talks about cultural change, that we really need a different approach to progress and one which includes everyone. And it pursues sustainability, renewable energy, leaves fossil fuel behind and is good for people. Well, you're the veteran of a lot of action. I've I've known Thea listeners for many years and this group ARC, which includes Hindus and Jewish people and Buddhists and Muslims, you know, they they all have in common this idea that this the common our common earth, our common world, we are part of it. And I think the Pope makes that point that we we aren't you know, some people say, Oh, if only we got rid of the human species, the earth would be fine you know sort of self-hating but the pope says that's not true we are part of it we are integrated with it and all our intelligence exactly you know the fruits of that the richness of that we're 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 the generations really benefiting of it you think medically for example we're benefiting from that but now we've we've gone into this overshoot into a sort of monstrous concentration of power and teamed with no wisdom at all so i respect you because you are the veteran of many of these sit-ins and at the towers of power you know the this financial center of sydney for example you're there and just quietly throwing in the idea that there's something else there's something better it doesn't have to be this way of all that concentration and ruthlessness pope says that about climate action groups and i'd like to know i mean a lot of people for example i read today catholics in america like about 40 percent of them don't believe climate change is happening and they're people who go to church every week. Do you think this Pope, he's really speaking to that element in that church, but also to all of us, that you can't stay with these unscientific beliefs any longer? It's causing damage by voting for the wrong people or all that. Do you think this will have an effect? I think it's gradually having an effect. I What the effect in the Catholic Church has been that those of us who have been speaking out have felt legitimated. Mm. Previous previous to Laudato Si, you know, we would say these kinds of things and be seen as on the fringes or just part of the climate movement and not really speaking out of faith. Now, archbishops and bishops really can't, or priests, can't readily say, no, that's not allowed. You can't put that poster up or you can't advertise that event because mm. really uh, they would be going against Pope Francis and various archbishops that are normally quite conservative just won't do that now. So it's meant that we've had much more of a free hand. I think gradually that means that, because I I really don't think a lot of people haven't read Laudato Si in the Catholic Church. They probably won't read Laudato Deum, but those of us who do read, I think we've been able to unrestrainedly stand up and that is shifting the culture in the church. 
you know, I I loved it. I mean, I thought it actually, I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to enjoy this at all, you know, laudate deum. It's going to be all about God saving us. That's what I thought. Oh, it's going to be all oh. about people <laughs> expecting God to come in at the last minute and save us. I just think that, that's terrible. But, uh, but it wasn't that a fool. <laughs> no, that's right. no, he's quite advanced. But, but but he said something interesting about squandering a crisis. You know, they say you should never mm. waste a good crisis. Well, that's the people who are going to come in and make a profit out of it, out like the New Orleans. You know, they suddenly came in and privatised yeah. all the schools and make a, a killing out of the crisis. But he said we have squandered the crisis of COVID and mm. the crisis of the, you know, the financial collapses where we just bailed them out and there were no strings attached. We were offered a chance to change our economic paradigm, but we yes. did. And with COVID, he says, we've become more individualized and we've increased the freedom of the truly powerful. But now yeah. we've got the climate crisis above all of that. And we can see it's caused by economy and it's caused by culture. It's belief. You know, it's people's belief is lagging the climate crisis. But it's really biting for people all around the world locally and they can see it do you think the pope what does he think he he says is the main thing so that we don't squander that crisis that we rise to the challenge of that crisis well, i mean we were at the we we're at the precipice really and kind of have a gun at our heads and if we don't really embrace the fact that we are interconnected with each other we need each other that uh, we need multilateral agreements. We need nations to stop just thinking in terms of our economic good. I'm very disappointed, you know, um, Albanese and others in the Labor government saying, oh, but we would be damaged economically. We need to be thinking in terms of the global common good and the future of our children and grandchildren. If we, if we do that, we not only save ourselves, we could develop better societies we either embrace multilateralism, embrace just the fact that we need to work everyone together to, to get ourselves out of this mess, or we don't survive as a species. You're listening to the Climate Action Show, and Thea Ormerod is explaining Laudate Deum, a recent letter to the world from Pope Francis. As the uh, head of ARC, what, what's your experience been about the commonality between all the different groups, different religions? I've been to several meetings of yours and it's so cordial. I always find it so cordial. People oh, yeah. singing or saying something in different languages and from all the different religions, all our different traditions. They talk about living simply, not needing material positions, caring about other people, taking responsibility, that human ethical development is so much more important than material wealth or comfort that's common to all the different traditions mm. love your neighbor as yourself if you add all that together if you translate that into the kinds of policies that we could have we would be living with much lower carbon footprint living in a way that's respectful of the earth living in a way that's respectful of other people who need the earth we all need nature as a, as a source of fruitfulness and we need nature we need to care for it mm. and that's all all those teachings are kind of common to the religious traditions and so hey it's cool in fact in the in the early stages of arc i thought oh well i mean we we can agree broadly that the environment is important but will they all sign up to we should be phasing out coal 
you know, for example, 10 years ago. Mm. And I went to all sorts of religion. You know, will you sign this letter that says we mm. should phase out coal? Yep. 49 <laughs> out of 50. Yes, we'll, I'll sign that letter. You know, yeah. and time and again, I've kind of made, we've made our letters a bit more pointed and a bit more um, what you might say is, you know, with bigger implications. I don't want to say radical, no. but, you know, in fact, conservative I think they're more truly conservative that we actually stronger positions we've put forward each time it's a stronger position on which would rein back more of our um, overreach and and actually serve the needs of the poor and each time we we come out with a yes we will support divestment yes we will Mm. support Australia endorsing the Port Vila call or the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty there's just no argument the religious lead, it's so easy to find mm. people to sign on to these strong positions. What about Aboriginal and Pacific Islander spirituality? That comes in a lot nowadays into the climate discussion. Yeah. And it's about uh, the Pope is tuned into that too. He talks about Indigenous people and people on the front lines who are yeah. so suffer- so much suffering from things and yet they have a completely different relationship with the earth that we have That's right, and he's a great admirer of Indigenous people. He's had many, many, many conversations. He comes from Argentina, Argentina, and and there he was very much in tune or became so, really, not all through his life. He Mm. became attuned Mm. to the message of the Indigenous people of the Amazon Mm. And he's he's since then become much more sensitised to the special relationship Indigenous people have with the earth and the land that mm. they had found themselves in. He's had many deep conversations with the Indigenous people of Canada. Mm. And so, and he's a great admirer of just the sort of give and take, the, the kind of connectedness and the honouring of the earth that people in the so-called developed world uh, could learn so much from, you know. So he he holds them in very high regard. At the same time, they've been the ones that have suffered greatly at the hands kind of dominating, dominance thinking, so-called development overreach that is so characteristic of wealthy countries. Our Western way of doing things is... Mm -hmm has been turbocharged by colonialism, several centuries of just going out and grasping what we wanted. But he says mm. the things, we can't go on with that. We might have infinite desire for power, but we haven't got infinite resources even of lithium and copper and the things that are for the new technology. We, we haven't got infinite resources of that. And so you have to turn that on its head and cherish the resources. They are, He says they are a gift rather than something yeah. that's just mm. a resource. Yes, exactly. And I think Aboriginal people in Australia can very much teach us that. When we listen to Aboriginal people, there's a, a tenderness towards the the setting in which we find ourselves, the, the land, the creatures, the soil, the earth, the sky, the, the rains, you know, they're, they're sort of intimately connected with it. And there's a kind of a respectful relationship Regrettably, uh, white settlement has been enormously disruptive, and but still that they have that sort of um, 
beautiful relationship with the earth is not it's still strong and intact mm. i think it's built on tens of thousands of years mm. um of of caring for the it's not something that they lose easily mm. so yeah um in arc and other climate organizations as best we can want to take our lead from aboriginal and torres strait islander people in this respect yeah all right. Well, thank you, Thea. So we've been talking to Thea Ormerod, who's the chair of ARC, Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. And she's just given us a first taste of the encyclical Laudate Deum, which is Pope Francis's answer to the climate challenge. And it's very strategically uh, sent to us just before COP28. So we'll we'll come back to it, I'm sure. There's such a lot in it we haven't touched on. Half of it, idea for you listeners to maybe just look it up. You can look it up online. It's only a few pages. Laudate Deum. Thank you, Thea. Thanks, Vivian. To the powerful, I ask, why do you want to preserve a power that will be remembered for its inability to stop the climate crisis when it was urgent and necessary? Behind this lack of an effective response, there is a technocratic paradigm that starts from the idea that human beings can expand without any limits their power thanks to technology. The COP28 of the United Nations to be held in Dubai must be a turning point. This conference must produce agreements for the energy transition that are efficient, binding, and easy to monitor. This message reminds us that human beings who pretend to take the place of God become the worst danger to themselves. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR Community Radio is right here at 85.5 a.m., so it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back, Australia, to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love. Before we dive a little deeper into Laudate Deum with Winton Higgins, here is something written by Clive Hamilton. He says, In most cultures... For as long as humans have lived, the sky has been the heavens, the dwelling place of the gods. Global dimming would not only transform the atmosphere, but also regulate the light reaching the earth from the sun. He's talking about geoengineering or climate engineering. For some cultures, the sun has its own divine character because it is the source of all growth, the food of plants, and all living things. It is the origin of the most primordial rhythms that have always governed our lives, the cycles of day and night and the annual seasons. For those cultures, the sun is God, and attempting to regulate it would surely be out of bounds. So that was from a book by Clive Hamilton called Earth Masters, Playing God with the Climate. David Suzuki says about Clive's book, he clearly shows that we cannot expect mega technological solutions to be problem free 
when our ignorance of how the biosphere works is so great. The only thing we can manage is ourselves, and we haven't done a very good job of that so far. Bears thinking about what is underpinning the ongoing policies that seem to be turbocharging us, not off a cliff, as Michael Mann says in his recent book, but propels us down a road to hell, really, four degrees or five degrees of warming, ignoring the exits. But there are exits all along that road. One is 1.5 degrees. The next exit is 1.6 degrees. And we are having these United Nations conferences where those exits must be discussed and how to get there and how to put teeth in the promises that we make. Wyndon Higgins is a writer and academic. He's been a barrister and is now a secular Buddhist scholar who we spoke to earlier about Laudato Si and Albert Camus. In his recent book, Revamp, he makes climate action the focus of his call to all who practice an ethical way of life to heed the cry for justice and radical political transformation. So we're in for a very interesting talk. Now we have this letter signed Francis, and it's from the Pope Francis, and there is a section in it called The Weakness of International Politics. So I immediately thought of Winton. So welcome, Winton. I feel that you are a friend of this program and many listeners who are immersed in climate action would like your help in understanding what we're up against. So can you describe the enemy in order for us to dismantle its power? Well, we have quite a few enemies, but um, the main enemy is uh, neoliberal capitalism. Neoliberalism became the hegemonic power over economic policy formation around the world in the 1980s, thanks to the efforts of Maggie Thatcher as Prime Minister of Britain and Ronald Reagan as President of the USA, both reigning at the same time and both singing from the same hymn book. So economic liberalism uh, represents a radical disconnect between human needs and um, the way they're distributed and the limitations of um, of nature to meet them, a radical connection between that and the way economics decisions are made and the measures of economic success. So the only measure of economic or financial success at uh, the micro level is growth in shareholder value. And at the macro level, all that matters is gross domestic product, GDP. So that's all that matters to your neoliberal decision maker. So in one account I read recently, you know, if you get hit by a bus and there is a lot of work goes into trying to save you, then both you and the bus driver have made a great contribution to GDP, whether you uh, survive or not. And that is a, a really good way of understanding how disconnected and seriously evil uh, neoliberal forms of calculation are. And for the last 40 years, this regime has been in place. 
And for the last 40 years, there's been this great acceleration in greenhouse gases and an enormous acceleration in the number of horrific um, climate catastrophes like cyclones uh, and tornadoes and and huge storms and so on. And all of these um, calamities, of course, strike at the global south, but are generated in the global north. You know, neoliberalism <laughs> is an ideology, but it has a human face. At the moment, uh, Greta Thunberg said it's just ridiculous. We've got the fox in charge of the hen house with the new COP28 coming up and the president of the COP is also the leader of a country that is absolutely pumping out oil all over the world. So it's got a human face. We often have vigils outside banks and, of course, their bank managers and CEOs are lovely, charming people with children and grandchildren, yeah. all that stuff. So it's an ideology that we have to somehow undermine, understand, undermine, and and also how ideologies do change. So Pope Francis writes about civil society filling the vacuum left by national and global governments. And we've had that impression that international governments are helpless at actually stopping fossil fuels. You know, there's um, plans to have a have them all get together as a like an OPEC of fossil fuel makers and make them find a transition plan among themselves. But none of it has worked and the emissions are still rising. And the Pope says unless citizens control political power, it will not be possible to control the damage to the environment. What examples do you think, what is he thinking of, do you think, citizens control? And also how do citizens get that control? Um, look, can, can I just go back a step in what you said there? Uh, neoliberalism is not just an ideology. Um, it is It is powerful institutions that impose these forms of calculation on nation states and on stock exchanges and all the relevant um, uh, power centres of economic power. It comes from what is called the Washington Consensus, which is not just an ideology, but it is actual institutions. It is the IMF, the World Bank, the US Treasury, and the World Trade Organization, all in Washington, hence the Washington Consensus, uh, but with relay, very important relays like the European Central Bank, uh, the Bank of England, and so forth. And globalisation, which is the creation of neoliberalism, is again, it's not just an ideology, it is a power structure that is imposed on the nicest people, you know, your nicest local bank manager. One of the things that's going for us is that neoliberal capitalism is in trouble now. And partly that was, uh, if you like, the upside of the pandemic, that it's just silly to talk about small government now when most uh, governments are, are, have had to intervene massively into socioeconomic life and are now massively indebted. In those countries where democracy still works to some extent, here we have, you know, citizens' genuine responsibility for what decisions are made. We shouldn't fall into any either or kind of thinking here. Mm. It's important for us to put pressure on our pollies, 
who you know go to these cop meetings uh, to try to do and do the right thing, as opposed to what the Australian Prime Minister did at the last uh, the last cop meeting, which was essentially to go in and barrack for fossil fuels. That's at the kind of national level or even the international level, but also at the grassroots. It's so important that certain individuals, God bless them, manage to cut through the ideology, the obfuscation and all that. And I'm thinking particularly of three that strike me who've really found their voice in this struggle uh, to save the planet. Um, or, and to and to create justice. I mean, the great thing about what Pope Francis has said in Laudato Si and now the latest one in Laudato Deo is that you can't separate the climate emergency from the horrendous growth in inequality and social exclusion, which is the other product of neoliberalism. So, you know, I think of these three young women at the time, Rosa Parks, who famously kicked off the uh, civil rights movement in, in the United States by just refusing to give up her seat to a white passenger on a bus. That was a kind of eloquent statement that that blew the whole Jim Crow uh, system out of the water. And then you've got Greta Thunberg and Malala Yusuf Sai, you know, two schoolgirls, as they were when they got going, who who have riveted public opinion across the globe, you know, who've become global global names and who've pressed just the right buttons uh, to get their get their point across. Hence, you're quoting Greta a few moments ago, and the fact that these have a galvanising influence on local. Uh, local movements, and it's so important that these local movements keep pressing over uh, any issue that arises for them, whether it's fracking in the Northern Territory or defending offshore wind turbines and all that sort of thing. I, I agree, and those individuals have created massive movements, haven't they? Malala Joya is, you know, an adult now, and uh, around her there's a great amount of positive work being done, Greta, to thousands and thousands of people, millions probably, know her and have picked up the bat and passed it to them. School Strike for Climate, in, as we see in Australia, quite a lot of very young people voicing this. And I spoke to someone the other day about the Scottish Citizens' Assembly or Popular Assembly on Climate Action, and um, they said they had a subsection of that, which was a children's parliament you know, to bring in the voice of children because they are showing themselves, you know, you're not managing. So we're 14 or 15. We, we know a lot and we want to be part of it. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Listening to the Climate Action Show, and Winton Higgins is exploring Laudate Deum from the secular Buddhist perspective. 
a lot of a lot of people in the world aren't citizens of anything. For example, the Rohingya. I've worried about them. I've interviewed people in Bangladesh. As thousands of Rohingyas flee out of Burma, Myanmar, and now just this week, Palestinians in Gaza. Well, they're not citizens of Israel. And the injustice they suffer is not leading to a fair distribution of land and water. And all of this is about climate change. Climate change is only going to push this sort of situation more. But Pope Faustus said he's worried that the weakness of international politics is that it doesn't have the mechanisms to provide for the common good. Well, that's obvious, but tell us what these mechanisms are and what would you think would replace them? What are the alternatives to the helpless sort of international mechanisms we've got. I, I don't think we should overly uh, overestimate the, the some systemic aspects of this, you know, the big organisations. It's, it's true that our major organisations are, are, are really showing their age. I mean, most of them were developed after the Second World War uh, when economic policy was quite different, you know, where the state had a recognised role in providing welfare and there were you know there were some genuine attempts to address the problems of the global south which were largely created by the global north back then also because through colonialism and the other thing is that you know that there is a, a line of thinking now with the cracking up of the neoliberal system that we are going into a, a, a state of indeterminacy there, there is no alternative model on the horizon yet. So we're going in, into a period where, which, which is going to be pretty unclear, but also capable of, of inviting creativity. And the creativity has to be at the local level, at the medium level, and at the central level. And I think, you know, when we find websites that are about something called social auditing, where where company you know, big global companies are being scrutinised for wonderful codes of ethics on the one hand, and then ripping off poor people <laughs> in the real world, you know, big pharma and so on. I think citizens' actions of of that kind are going to be really important, as well as you know the ones that are physically there in your face and try to be like uh, extinction rebellion. I think it, it's going to be a combination of all those things. I think we need to have a quite a scattergun approach to this. You know, wh whatever works at the local level or at the regional level or the national level or at the international level, we should give it a go because there is, you know, this we're, we're not working towards a new utopia here. We're, mm -hmm. we're working towards probably in the long term a new form of global governance which um which will be different from the one we've got now yeah well there was that novel called the ministry for the future and we've interviewed people about that and we've dramatized chapters of it with trying to vision i think it's very important that you we find the words even that thing scattergun is good that you throw it out there because people say to me quite i interview every week all different groups all these different like to this week, it's vet, veterinarians for climate action and different groups who are approaching this from their own professional or local angle. But 
not many people get the big picture. It's very hard to get that big picture. When you say it's scattergun, that's good because a lot of people say to me, well, this should be coordinated. Why isn't this coordinated? And we know, I think you've said it's an asymmetrical battle. You know, we are the David. All these grassroots people are the David. But there's a big Goliath out there, which is corporate power. You know, we say state governments are being captured by corporate power. But also there's also a lump of people who are not associated with anything, who are just caught there, just, oh, I don't know, vote yes, vote no, I don't care. You know, like they're just not connected. So I think that David is just that cluster of people I admire very much who are taking action, even though they're not coordinated. Uh, what do you mm -hmm. see emerging? What do you see emerging from that? One of the, first of all, there is there is a real danger of that um, that people take Australia, for example. There are so many people who are not in it, who have no civic anchorage. You know, as this really came out in the, the recent referendum on the voice to Parliament. Uh, that um, you know, you you had a, we, we had a situation where. The trade unions, the sporting bodies, the professional bodies, the occupational bodies, just about every civic uh, organisation um, was was pushing for a yes vote. And yet we had this massive no vote, uh, presumably people who weren't a member of a, a union or a sporting body or a, a civic organisation of any kind. And so this reminds me very much of you know, the, the social science around the rise of fascism in the 1930s, that you, you know, the, the whole concept of mass society, a mass society is one in which the individuals in it don't have any kind of civic anchorage. They're not in a political party. They're not in a trade union. They're not in anything, you know. Um, in other words, they're not engaged. They're not talking to other people. Uh, they're not a part of any discussion. And so, you know, the danger that we're facing that, that you know, Trump and Brexit and now our own failed referendum show is that it, mass society is, is back, you know, and it's easily manipulable by a Trump uh, or, you know, the Looney Tunes on social media. But, you know, at the same time, there's an opportunity here to to recruit from these people, one might say, across party lines. You know, it was really interesting, for instance, when, in the last federal election, when the Teal movements got going in, in those electorates, and, and they hoovered up all sorts of people who were suddenly civically anchored <laughs> and talking to each other who had formerly been Liberal voters or Labor or Greens, whatever, they all came together in, in um, you know, support movements that look pretty enduring at this stage. You know, they're not a nine-day wonder. And it's that kind of, um, I suppose, that, that is the possibility that a mass society offers us, uh, is to get people involved because they can see that this is that the climate emergency is a real existential threat to humanity in general and you know the local neighborhood in particular uh, so and you know the futures of our children 
and then our grandchildren. You're all power to the to the people who who are mobilising these movements. Yeah. Well, listeners will know some of the strategies that are used by groups. A lot of them will be part of these groups. That's I feel that's who our audience is. Strategies to dismantle Goliath, let's call it. For example, sit-ins, vigils, disruptions at banks, company headquarters, lock-ons, you know, to coal trains. Look, over the 11 years I've been doing this, I've interviewed so many people. Then they get into court cases, people who lock onto logging machinery, petitions, letters to members of parliament, taking companies and governments to court, like the recent Living Wonders case. Listeners might remember it was just two weeks ago. They wanted Tanya Plibersek, Minister of the Environment, to stop approving new coal and gas because of the impacts on our living wonders like wetlands, coral reefs and fragile alpine plants. You know, all of these things they catalogued in the Living Wonders treasure trove. It's all online. But none of this is actually taking political power. You know, as the Pope said, unless the these groups take political power, we won't be able to turn things around. What do you suggest about political power? Look, I think I, I think um, it's a bit too pessimistic to think that you know the, the, these campaigns, these mobilisations against you know fracking in a certain place or or a new gas field somewhere. Uh, I think they're all adding up. I mean, I think they there's a cumulative effect to these and in some cases they actually do win their campaigns and obviously we need more successes both for the sake of saving the planet but also the demonstration effect of running a campaign that actually works and again you know I put my hat off to the to the teal campaigners who <laughs> it actually worked to everyone's absolute amazement that uh, they could actually snatch blue ribbon Liberal seats from from the Liberals, you know. I I, I think that one should have a broad idea of what um, political power here means. It certainly needs to be mobilised, and it would be great if left wing political leaders and thinkers could start to uh, outline what might replace neoliberalism. I mean, you know, there are there are examples of very positive examples of um, cooperative, the cooperative movement and cooperative industry, like the Mondragon, Mondragon, a huge, you know, cooperative sector in Spain, where they there's diverse manufacturing that they are, they've got their own banks, they don't have to kowtow to the International Monetary Fund. They can they can do what will create jobs and create create well being for the the whole region in a way that's um, that's ecologically sustainable. So, you know, it's models like that that we need to bring forward and say this is this is the way we want it, you know. Um and and that might require us uh, we have to bite the bullet here. Certain things like um, you're renationalising yes. things like the power grid and yes. and um, oh, yes, and also and also you know sources of um, sources of power. Whether 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 they're coal powered fire stations that we want to nationalise in order to shut them down, mm. <laughs> or you know 
build big solar farms and, and wind farms and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I'll just remind listeners, there's a book by Mark Diesendorf, uh, I think it's called Sustainable Civilization, and Tim Hollow's recent book. They're both on that and we've featured them here. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. We're talking to Winton Higgins, uh, who's a thinker and an academic, and we started off talking about the Pope's new encyclical called Lato Deo, and I want to now move to his last chapter on COP28. To me, this is an Orwellian construction, the COP28 in Dubai with the uh, president of it, the leader of a petrostate. It's no longer of keeping, no longer a question of keeping the fossil fuel companies out. I've always been hoping, why do they have Santos there? Why do they, you know, part of the Australian delegation in the last one was Santos. Why are they allowed even at the table? But now the whole table is in a petro state, so it's not a question of keeping anyone out. But Pope Francis said it would be suicidal to lose hope in this process and asks people at the conference, he puts this question, what would induce any one of you at this stage to hold on to power only to be remembered for their inability to take action when it was urgent and necessary to do so? Now, I don't think that'll land in a very pointed way on the heads of the people we're talking about, but what do you take from this, the COP28? Well, look, I mean, I, I agree it's absolutely obscene that uh, that climate uh global climate policy should be made under the under the chairpersonship of um of a fossil fuel nation you know of an oil shakedom that these international organizations uh often are often are captured by the people creating the problem that they're supposed to address i'm thinking again of saudi arabia being on the human rights UN Human Rights Commission. I mean, talk about, you know, the fox and the hen. Uh, but um, uh, I still think it's important to, when these when these events occur, like COP, uh, that, that they are pushed to make progressive decisions, effective decisions, and when they don't, that they are exposed for not doing so, that the critique is really important. And another example of this are the annual Davos meetings, you know, the World Economic Order, or whatever they call themselves, which have been described as carnivals of insincerity <laughs> because there you've got the major global corporations and their political minders coming together pretending to fix things like climate, uh, the climate mm -hmm. emergency, and massive and growing inequality between the global south and global north. When the when you know every well, the, the other three hundred and sixty-four days of the year, they are precisely burning up the planet and creating ever more 
social exclusion and social inequality. So I think it's important that we really debunk, that we delegitimize uh, those sorts of um, international events or institutions which are supposed to be doing something when, in fact, they are probably doing the opposite. Yeah. Well, now, just the last question. This is really, we're recording this while the most terrible thing is happening in the Middle East. Reminds me of what happened in Armenia, which was a genocide 100 years ago plus. But you're a Holocaust scholar. I've read your books about that. And we've talked about Camus and the Le Chambon people. But I think you know a lot about what keeps wars going. You know, they start and they're always going to be over by Christmas, but then they go on and on. And from a climate perspective, the war in Ukraine and now this escalation in the Middle East, is it looks to me like the international focus and cooperation that we need to wind back coal, oil and gas will be lost. Um, what's your reflection on that? Well, I agree that hardly anyone is thinking about the climate now, particularly with the, the um, Israeli-Hamas war and which has even, uh, you know, upstaged the, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, so yeah, this is this is a tragic situation, and it's just important that we keep pushing the climate issues, despite our distractions from the fact that it's not just the Ukrainians and the Palestinians who are in the firing line. We are all in the firing line. You know, we have to, I think, make that connection between you know, being in the firing line in a in a specific uh, war situation and being in the firing line in terms of the, the, the battle to save the planet from, uh, you know, the neoliberal capitalist system. Well, just to finish, on a completely different note, listeners, uh, Winton, who has been trying to retire and he's agreed to do this interview, he should be entitled to retire and just write books, but he's now doing a retreat with Stephen Batchelor, and it's called How to Engage in a World of Crisis. Well, you couldn't have picked a better name for your talk. Speak to the listeners about the secular dharma, what you're going to be talking to people there. They'll be. It's in December. Will, will we still in the Middle East War? Will we still in the Ukraine War? Will we still in the climate crisis? What are you going to say to them? We'll be talking about how how you develop a new Buddhist ethic, not, not one that's different from the actual old one. And one of the fascinating things that have come out of uh, recent scholarship is how, for instance, fascinating the fact that Socrates and the Buddha, who during his lifetime was just called Gautama, they lived in exactly the same period. Their life spans are exactly coincide also that period was you know the great flowering of greek philosophy which was all about ethics and what though there was no actual communication between gotama in northeast india and uh, and the greeks but they were coming up with the same idea that you have to forget about metaphysics you have to forget about religious truth claims and all that, and focus on developing an ethic in a, in a in in a reality that is totally uncertain. 
that you that your ethics can't depend upon religious doctrine or philosophical doctrine or the other. It has to be something that is self-sustaining, uh, and it must be one based upon compassion and wisdom. And so, it is you know, instead of trying to trying to defend theologies and religious doctrines, etc., we need to be entirely focused on what we need to do, what what the present situation is calling for us to do in order to express our virtue, our wisdom, our compassion, uh, and without presuppositions about where where the answers are going to be. Mm. Well, mm. you've told us a bit about the teals and the these individuals who found their voice. What do you think in the present moment? Can you just tell us <laughs> what do you think? Well, I mean, I guess my immediate um, answer to that is join a movement. <laughs> it's really important to be mobilised. This is a terrible part of our, you know, the entertainment uh, world that we that that we become couch potatoes. You know, having a, a considerable acquaintance with uh, Swedish culture and the way Swedes see life, or certainly used to is that they didn't really approve of couch potatoes. <laughs> it was, you had to be out there doing something, you know, going to an evening course or being a member of your local safety committee or a union or whatever it is, even, even a, you know, a basketball club. It had to be out there being a citizen, being active. And that is the best school of them all, you know, and I just think of the ancient Greeks who invented the word idiot for someone who was not publicly engaged. <laughs> and, <Really? laughs> and of course, if you're not publicly if you're not publicly engaged, you're missing out on the greatest educational experience you can get. And that so they you know, the people who were couch potatoes were genuine idiots <laughs> in <laughs> in uh, in ancient Greece. And the same is true today, I think. And so oh. you end up voting no random. <laughs> oh, don't, yeah, don't go any further. <laughs> That's <laughs> wonderful, wonderful way to end. I don't want to offend any listeners, but I don't think there are any idiots really among our listeners here. So thank you very much, Winton. Uh, Winton Higgins is a wonderful writer. He's written novels as well, uh, academic. But today he's been speaking about the Pope's uh, in Cynical called Laudato Deum, which is a good read. It's online. It's only a few pages, but it's really the Pope speaking to the Catholic world. But it's it has a lot to do with where Winter's coming from, people with any sort of ethical tradition who are interested in getting a bit of a grip. So thank you very much, Winton. Thank you. That was wonderful to share with you, dear listeners, and thank you for listening and bearing with this rather deep dive into the ethics of climate action. Thank you to Thea Ormerod and Winton Higgins for being our guides to Laudate Deum. You can read the letter from Francis by the link on our show notes. And as Winton said, the way to build the sort of civil society that can be wise and compassionate is to join something. You might find your niche at ARC. And the link there is on the show notes. But to any of the groups that we talk about each week, 
get into the movement, the climate movement, and be part of that break on megalomania and break on conservative um, do-nothing-till-it's-too-late politics. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasurer. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.